is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lamb. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lamb. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith Fam, uh, first of all, uh, before we do anything, shouts to Engineer Gilad for the birth of a baby. We're so excited for you. He's amazing. The reason these episodes sound so good is because he's rocking and rolling all the time. And now he's doing it with the baby. Uh, but man, I cannot tell you how excited I am to have uh, today's guest on. He's professor of religion at Rice University, author of several fantastic books that have shaped my thinking. Uh, just last year, uh, Kabbalah and the Founding of America, The Early Influence of Jewish Thought in the New World. He's Brian Ogren, and we are going to talk about the Renaissance, the American founding, Jewish mysticism, Western civilization, just a ton of good stuff. But first, uh, let's set this bad boy up. Okay, so one of the cool things I've discovered through podcasting and writing about biblical studies and the Western reception of the Hebrew Bible is that people are surprised when I tell them that Jewish tradition going back to like classical antiquity regards Esau, the biblical character, as like a supervillain. He's like the Joker, the progenitor of evil. And, you know, I get the reaction. If you just crack open a Bible with no context, you end up with this picture of Esau as kind of like this oafish character, like all brawn, no brains. He gets taken advantage of by the more clever Jacob. So why does this interpretative tradition arise? And the short answer is that as, you know, as the Jewish people in antiquity came to be ruled and oppressed by the Roman Empire, they began to use Esau or Edom, as he's often known in the Bible, as a symbol for Rome. And then as the empire Christianizes and Jewish persecution in the centuries that follow, you know, reaches new and kind of frightening heights. So Esau becomes the symbol for Christendom. But in order to understand the import of this, we need to ask a pretty simple question, which is, it's all well and good to say that Esau and the Edomites, you know, become Rome. But, you know, what happened to the actual Esau, to the actual Edomites? Like they were an actual people and ethnicity. What happened to them? And the answer is it's complicated. So it turns out that the picture of the Edomites shifts as the Bible unfolds. So we first meet them in the character of Esau in Genesis, you know, where the tension between Esau and Jacob is, is clear. And then we meet them again with Moses in the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy. And there they're portrayed as like still suspicious of the Israelites who are journeying to, you know, take possession of the promised land. But here the Israelites are commanded not to harm them or their land. And God especially emphasizes to the Israelites that the Edomites are their brothers and they should be treated accordingly. And then the relationship shifts again when we get to the book of Lamentations or the prophet Obadiah, her writing in the wake of the Babylonian conquest of Judea in the 6th century and the destruction of the temple. The Edomites had sided with the Babylonians, which was an act of betrayal that kind of prompted Obadiah's harsh pronouncement for the slaughter and violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you. And that's the last we hear of Esau and the Edomites in the Bible. But we do hear one last thing about them before they disappear into history during the era of the Second Temple in the first century, when Josephus tells us something quite remarkable about them. Josephus describes the Edomites as the greatest allies the Jews had in the revolt against Rome. And their last declaration as they prepare to stand before Jerusalem's walls against Roman forces, well, Josephus quotes the Edomite leaders as follows, we that are Edomians, that are Edomites, will preserve this house of God and will fight for our common country and will oppose by war as well those that attack them from abroad as those that betray them from within. And that shift 
from enemy to like ride or die ally, that's perhaps the most remarkable of all. Because what appears to happen from this point on is the Edomites like merge into the Jewish people. And the reason the Edomite mantle was available to be applied to Rome and then christened them at all is because the actual Esau had merged back with Jacob. So the biblical account of Esau and the Edomites and its like reception in the Jewish tradition, I think it tells us two things. I think first, the role of Esau as understood by Obadiah as like a villain represents something real and, and terrifying in the world, hatred, bigotry, betrayal, anti-Semitism. Like somebody will always fill that role, literal Esau or not. And we need to recognize this when it happens. But at the same time, consider what happened to actual Edom. It did play that role at one point, but it didn't have to play that role forever. Its historical role could change, it could shift. So what about European civilization, right? Will Rome always be Esau? Will old Europe and the civilization at birth always be Edom? Well, if Jewish tradition and rabbinic literature is any guide, we should expect that things can shift, and we should be prepared to assimilate those shifts into our thinking. And in many ways, the story of the American experiment is one such shift, or potential shift. It's a nation founded by Christian thinkers, to be sure, but these founders were shaped by an unusual fascination with and love for Jewish literature and consequently a warmth for Jews themselves that has historically been exceptional. Uh, in the words of none other than John Adams, whom I hope we'll talk about later, and this is one of my favorite Adams quotes ever, Jews have given religion to three quarters of the globe and have influenced the affairs of mankind more and more happily than any other people, ancient or modern. Anyone will tell you who knows and will tell you that's my favorite quote from Adams. America, I think, has always had the potential to shift from the Edom of Ebediah to other more wholesome models. And Jewish thinkers, from Rabbi Gershom Satius, America's first native-born rabbi in the 18th century, to the Lubavitcher Rebbe in the 20th, saw this very clearly. So my question is, why is America like this? Or why is it such fertile ground for the flourishing of Judaic thought and values? And which thinkers were influential in building this potential? And I'd also add, like, what texts and traditions played a role in this that we might not have assumed would be a bedrock part of American history? And so to unpack all of this, I brought on the guy who quite literally wrote the book on this, or multiple books on this. He's a professor of religion at Rice University, author of fantastic books that completely changed how I think about the world, like Kabbalah and the Founding of America, The Early Influence of Jewish Thought in the New World, and Kabbalah and America, Ancient Lore in the New World. He's Brian Ogren. Brian, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of the podcast, and I'm happy to be here. And I should say Mazal Tov to Gilad also. Hey! <laughs> okay, so when we think about the turn to modernity in the wake of the Middle Ages, we tend to, like, homogenize a bunch of things, right? Like the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, the Scientific Revolution, the Industrial Revolution, and we basically treat all of them as if they narrate a story about human history that goes something like this. First, humans believed in ghosts and fairy tales, and now they believe in science, right? Like in bits and atoms. And like most simplistic stories, it's wrong, but I'm more interested in the ways that it's wrong. And in particular, I'm interested in why this is a bad picture of the Renaissance, and I mean, it's it's a time of incredible intellectual ferment, but in many ways, the Renaissance represents a rediscovery, not just of like Cicero, but of other ancient traditions that philosophers and scientists alike felt could and would reshape and revitalize the modern world. And one of those was Jewish mysticism, right? So how does Jewish mysticism figure into the Renaissance? Yeah, that's an interesting question. It's 
problematic to pit science against religion, in my opinion. Yeah, this is certainly not not original to me. We can already go back to Francis Yates, who has this thesis that, you know, actually science comes out of this religious type of thinking, specifically in her case, it's been contested, but occult type of thinking. I mean, you can just look at people like Isaac Newton, for example. He had more speculative writings on the Bible and apocalypticism than he did scientific writings. So, I mean, it's interesting that we have this idea of science versus religion. It certainly wasn't always that way. I would argue it's still not completely that way. Agreed. In terms of the Renaissance, I mean, we get a lot of ideas of humanism as you know, placing the human within the center of consciousness, sort of a move away from the God idea. It's been misunderstood and misread. One of my colleagues, one of my mentors, a guy named Brian Copenhaver, has recently come out with several books and sort of a thesis that has been driving his research for a lot of uh, his career about a guy named Giovanni Pico della Mirandola, Need to do a podcast just on Pico della Mirandola. So, so interesting. Absolutely, absolutely. He's a fascinating character. Um, and he's been credited with this idea of placing man, I won't be anachronistic and say, but really the idea of the human in the center of the picture. And, you know, there's this idea that he wrote this idea of an oration on the dignity of man. Actually, the idea of the dignity of man was something that was later tacked on to that. If you look really closely at this oration, it's really talking about this idea of angelification. He's, it's very much a Kabbalistic treatise that has to do with certain processes, certain techniques that the person can go through to through a process of perfection, certainly, but it's a process where, you know, it's become, it, it's emulating the process of the biblical Hanoch, uh, Enoch, becoming Metatron, the figure Metatron. Um, so there's much more mystical, speculative, uh, religious, if we want to put it that way, thinking behind this idea of the human as being contingent. The contingency is insofar as, you know, it has to do with even celestial worlds and such. It's not taking religion out of the picture. In fact, it's focusing on perfection through the processes of becoming more religious in some way. The Renaissance, and I think the the best formulation would be this expanding of the horizons of what it's possible to know about the world rather than a contraction, right? From everything down to just the scientific hypothesis, you know, like a hypothesis or the scientific method. It's rather this, this expanding of the horizons that says, actually, we can investigate as thinkers so much more about the human experience. And that includes mysticism. It includes, you know, ancient rhetoric. It includes the Hebraic past, the classical past, and, and so much more. So within that kind of moment of great intellectual fermentation. What is it about Jewish mysticism that draws some of these thinkers? Like, why are they attracted to it? Okay, yeah, this is really, I could go on for hours about this. Well, that's why we have this podcast. 
So when you think about what the Renaissance is, right, it's really this idea of a rebirth, a rebirth of what? A rebirth, you know, we know of this idea of classical knowledge. And, you know, anybody who's familiar with Renaissance art, for example, there's a lot of ideas of regaining the techniques and also the concepts that are within classical Greek culture. But thinkers went beyond Greek culture, and there was this idea that, you know, the ancient world contains some type of truth, and it's not relegated specifically to the classical Greek culture, but they were thinking also we can look at the Hermetic culture, which they thought mistakenly was hearkening back to ancient Egyptian culture. I mean, there, there perhaps is some element of Egyptian culture, although it's heavily inflected with Neoplatonism as well. You know, there's Persian, uh, this idea of ancient Persian culture. And then, of course, they viewed Kabbalah or various elements of Jewish mysticism, as well as, you know, Kabbalah is a complex term. It's not necessarily all mysticism, but Kabbalah is the received tradition, if we want to look at it that way, quite literally speaking, in terms of what the word Kabbalah means. Right. The Hebrew root of that word is it means to receive. Right. So it's the received tradition passed on from generation to generation. Going back to Moses at Sinai, some people would claim that it's going back to Adam, the first Adam, that he's receiving some type of esoteric wisdom, we can put it that way, from God. And he's passing it on orally from generation to generation, all the way up into through the Renaissance and up into our day for those who hold that traditional view. And the idea is there that there's a pristine type of wisdom going back to Revelation at Sinai itself, if not even further back to the first man. And, you know, this becomes even more pronounced for Renaissance philosophers in terms of this rebirth of pristine knowledge than I would even argue Greek culture, because it has its foundations in the Bible. And then, of course, for this podcast, it's very pertinent, this idea that the Bible is, you know, the source not only for Judaism, but also for Christianity and for uh, what might become at least one pillar of Western civilization in some way. So, you know, this attempt to recapture this truth, this pristine ancient truth, led a lot of the thinkers that I'm interested in from the Renaissance and onwards to this sort of trying to recapture, re-understand the elements that make up the esoteric readings of the Bible itself that are found in this Kabbalistic tradition. So I mentioned John Adams earlier, and while he had, you know, great admiration for Jews and the Hebrew Bible in particular, he had like less patience, as did did Thomas Jefferson for that matter, for Jewish mysticism, for for Kabbalah. But then you have other influential figures from the American founding era, like Ezra Stiles, uh, as the president of Yale during the American Revolution, and he's also one of the founders of Brown. So you know, like batting a solid two fifty in leadership at Ivy League schools. The historian uh, Edmund Morgan describes Stiles as the most learned man in America. And there's this amazing letter that Stiles writes to his friend, uh, Benjamin Franklin, I think in like 1769, 
uh, who's then stationed in London, where he asks Franklin to procure for him a copy of the Zohar, which is the foundational work of classical Jewish mysticism. So why was Stiles so interested in this? Yeah. So in terms of John Adams, it's interesting because he gets billed with being very friendly towards the Jews, although in terms of the esoteric tradition specifically, as you're saying, he was not having it. You know, he comes up with this statement that... This is like a very curmudgeonly moment in the history of thinking about Jewish mysticism for those guys, you know. <laughs> he, yes, he says, you know, if he were to live all the 969 years of Methuselah, it would end, <laughs> you know, he were to devote this to studying the esoteric wisdom of the Jews, by which he means not only Kabbalah, but also the Talmud. He places the Kuzari in there, which is a, uh, you know, philosophical text, and various other Jewish extra-biblical texts. It would be all wasted, you know, so he's not having it. <laughs> Jefferson has a similar opinion, you know, that this is all a waste of time, that, you know, it's in order to understand the ethics of the Jews, which is for him is very low, you know, it would we would need to study it and he just doesn't do it. He won't have it. In contradistinction to this, someone like Stiles, who comes comes along, he's very interested in this. He's very devoted to this. And like you said, he asks Benjamin Franklin to procure for him. A, Benjamin Franklin at the time is in London as a sort of representative of the colonies. Uh, and he asks Benjamin Franklin to, to procure for him a copy of the Zohar. He became interested in the Zohar by reading the, I don't know if you want to get into this. Let's do it, baby. Let's go. That's what this is for. <laughs> okay. So, right, he's there. there's this guy named Judah Monis, who is also a major figure within this book that I wrote on Kabbalah and the founding of America. Judah Monis was the first full-time Hebrew instructor at Harvard. He's a very peculiar character who, it looks like he's coming from Livorno in Italy. He ends up making his way to Cambridge, Massachusetts eventually. Uh, and he convert. he's a Jew and he converts. Yeah, he's a very complicated figure in Jewish history. He is indeed, um, and especially American Jewish history. He ends up converting to Congregational Christianity in 1722. And at his baptism, he gives a very public discourse. Uh, and not only does he give a public discourse, then it gets published with various other tracts that he writes. Uh, and this discourse that's, that gets published is very Kabbalistically infused. Okay, so fast forward a couple of decades. And Ezra Stiles is reading this published discourse of Judo Monus, and he becomes fascinated. He thinks, oh, there's this Kabbalistic stuff involved in pointing to the truth of the Trinity, the truth of Christianity. It gets very complicated. I don't know if you want to get into, you know, it's a, it's a sort of a misreading of Zoharic texts and such. But, you know, this hooks Stiles, and then he thinks, okay, I'm reading this through people like Judah Monis, and then he's reading it also. He's tapped into the Republic of Letters. A lot of the people are writing about this type of thing. He thinks, I want to go to the source and read this stuff for myself and see what it's all about. So that's why he asks for the Zohar, a copy of the Zohar, which is late in coming. He eventually does receive a copy of the 1684 Zoltzbach edition of the Zohar, which in itself is a whole story. 
he's learning this. He apparently learned enough Aramaic to be able to handle the textual tradition. He learned Hebrew. We should mention before he was president of Yale, he was the congregational minister in Newport, Rhode Island. I'm going to get to this. Don't worry about that. Okay. Okay. So, uh, yeah, he becomes fascinated with this Jewish lore. Uh, not only Kabbalah, but Kabbalah is very high on his list, certainly, of trying. And his whole goal in this is to try to show the truth of Christianity, the truth of the Trinity, the true, as he has it, uh, reading of the Bible. Now, typically, people across the centuries who have used Jewish texts for those purposes, this has not ended well for the Jews. And yet, in the case of Styles, he actually ends up becoming a quite close friends with several Orthodox rabbis and, and studying with them. Uh, his favorite rabbi is Rabbi Raphael Chaim Isaac Karagal. And Rabbi Karagal was the sign of a rabbinic family in Hebron in the Holy Land. Uh, for nerds out there, like myself, he's likely a neighbor and colleague of the Chida, one of the major Jewish sages at the time, also from Hebron. And Rabbi Karagal's travels eventually take him to Newport, which is what you were alluding to earlier, to Newport, Rhode Island. And he becomes the rabbi of the, you know, what's now known as the Turo Synagogue there, where he and Stiles strike up a pretty remarkable friendship. So how does that go and why is it important? So Karagal, actually, he's passing through town. He, he was there for, I think, like six months. Yeah, he's here for like a very short time. Yeah, and then he made his way to Barbados, where, you know, he's installed as rabbi of the community there. We're not sure what he was doing there. He seems to be some type of uh, shaliach, some type of emissary coming from the Holy Land. He's from Hebron. And he's like raising money potentially for Hebron. The, co the community in the Holy Land is like impoverished at the time. And we know they're sending out various people, including... Rabbi Karagal's father was uh, an emissary raising funds for the community in the Holy Land, right? Yes, exactly. So it seems like he's raising money. I still don't know why. Well, perhaps that's why he's in Newport, why he makes his way to Newport. Remember, a lot of the people there, we don't have a, a lot of great scholars in the colonies in the New World. Right. Um, we do have a lot of Jewish merchants. You know, so then right. there's this idea that if they can convince, you know, some of these wealthy Jewish merchants to support the settlements within the land, then, you know, this is worth a worthwhile endeavor. Like you said, he's he's at the synagogue. He gives a sermon at the synagogue and Stiles gets word that this big rabbi from the Holy Land is here and there's sort of an Orientalism at play there. He thinks, you know, oh, I'm interested in this ancient Jewish lore. I'm interested in the Holy Land, you know, for his own Christological purposes. And he thinks I can stripe, strike up a conversation with this guy and learn directly from him. And so, you know, he visits the synagogue. He talks to this rabbi. He has various meetings with this rabbi. Not only him, there are a total of six rabbis that he meets with along the way. But he's very clear that Rabbi Karagal is like head and shoulders above the others, which like from a credential standpoint is almost certainly the case. Yeah, he loves Karagal. He loves, loves Karagal. It's, I mean, I make the claim that there's something almost even homoerotic in the language that he's using to describe his relationship with Karagal. That doesn't necessarily mean that they had a homoerotic relationship, but he's using this, you know, type of 
um, highfalutin language, even talking about, you know, similar to David and Jonathan, this type of relationship that, uh, you know, his love for Karigal is even exceeding that of a love for a woman and this type of thing. He does seem to think, you know, he does seem to be drawn into this allure of sort of his look, that he's got this Middle Eastern type of look to him even. And he's fascinated by this guy, Karigal. Although in my opinion, Karigal is not the most fascinating character that he comes in, that uh, Ezra Stiles comes into contact with. Oh my God, let's do this. <laughs> so yeah, there's this guy named Moshe Bardavid, which... We know nothing about him. Apparently, he's coming from Apta in Poland, and he makes his way into the New World for some reason. We don't know what he's doing there. We know nothing about him. The only thing we know is what are in uh, Ezra Stiles' diaries. Uh, and, you know, there he makes the claim that we have no reason to doubt that he's bringing with him a letter from the Chacham of the... Sephardic synagogue in London, you know, giving sort of his gushpanka, his stamp of approval, right. stamp right. of approval. Yeah. So other than that, we know nothing about this. But in his diary, Styles is talking about this guy, Moshe Bar David, that he, you know, brought with him various commentaries on Sefer Yitzirah, which is a very ancient sort of, it becomes a mystical text. And he's learning with this guy. He's learning these Kabbalistic things in various philosophical keys. And to me, that's really fascinating that he's, he ends up, it seems to me that he's learning more Kabbalistic lore textually based from this guy Moshe Bar David than he is from Karigal. Karigal kind of distances himself from Kabbalah, as it were, saying, you know, oh, I know nothing. I don't know if it's... Uh... Right, he just tries to direct the conversation towards other things. Yes, right? that's what it seems like. What's fascinating is, so Ezra Stiles' diary, which is published, like the printed version is published in 1903, and I remember reading it for the first time, and you see he's like interacting with these rabbis, and there is a little bit inf of information in the published diary about it, but oftentimes, whenever he gets to these conversations with these rabbis, who appear to be quite learned, and in Rabbi Karagel's case, like we almost certainly know was, was exceptionally learned, they'll be in the printed version like an ellipsis. And, you know, there'll be this huge gap in the text, and it'll go on to something else that has nothing to do with rabbis. And it's only once you kind of go to the Beinecke Library in Yale, where Ezra Stiles' own handwritten copy of the diary is, that you can see just like pages and pages of these really in-depth conversations that he had with these rabbis. Um, and you mentioned Sefer Yitzirah, which is this mystical work that Moshe Bar David gives to Stiles. So like six months later, he's studying that very, like he's asking Rabbi Karagal questions on the basis of passages that he had read already in Sefer Yitzirah. And Karagal is like, is almost like taken aback that he knows this stuff. Well, the reason I ask about Rabbi Karagal is because later in Stiles' career, when he becomes the president of Yale, so Yale uh, suspends any commencement exercises because of the American Revolution in 1775. This is prior to Stiles' tenure. He takes over, I think, in 78. And the first, uh, but classes, but rather commencement remains suspended for another, for another two years the first commencement exercises that Yale has since the beginning of the revolution is in 1781, just over two weeks before the Battle of Yorktown. And it's there that Stiles delivers 
a remarkable commencement address, which I read for the first time in your book. Uh, can you talk a little bit about it? It's so fascinating. Yeah, interesting. I thought you were going somewhere else with that in terms of the Kerrigal connection, because if anybody goes... Oh, wait, I want to he- hear about where you thought I was going, because it's probably more interesting. <laughs> well, probably not, actually. That is a pretty fascinating commencement address that he gives. But what I was thinking of was, if anybody visits the galleries at Yale, uh, you know, there's a portrait of Kerrigal hanging up in there that was commissioned apparently by Stiles himself. And there's also a portrait of Stiles where he has a very interesting sort of diagram with the tetragrammaton, the yud He vav He in the center of this little diagram behind him over. Right, the spelling of the name of God in the Bible. Yes. Uh, and then, you know, you can see his bookshelf also, and it has certain, it has Morene Buchima, the guide of the perplexed of Maimonides on the bookshelf. It has various <laughs> other books. Um, this is in Stiles' portrait, but Kerrigal also has his own portrait written, uh, made by the same artist. Uh, So that's where I thought you were going with that. It's It's amazing. He had such reverence for this rabbi that he had his portrait drawn up for, uh, you know, that now hangs in the Yale art galleries. Um, The commencement address is fascinating. Yeah, he wrote it in, it seems like he wrote it originally in Hebrew. It's, and I have the reproduction of the Hebrew actually in my book. It's a very strange Hebrew. It's, I don't know if you tried to read through the Hebrew, but it's very hard to read. It's I, I reproduced it, the Hebrew itself. Yeah, he's trying his best. <laughs> so he wrote this thing in 1778, right? He's trying his best. And then he translated it, fortunately for us, because then we get to know what he's actually trying to say here. And he gave it in 1781 in English. So then we get a sense of what he was trying to say there. What's fascinating about this thing, not only that he's giving a commencement address reportedly in Hebrew, in a very strange Hebrew, but that he talks in there about how rabbinic learning, and then specifically he makes a lot of allusion to Kabbalistic learning and Jewish esoteric learning, should be taught and learned in the colleges of America, including Yale, and then presumably also including Brown, as you said, he's very involved in the founding of Brown and in other places that he wants. He sees Yale and other seminaries such as this in the New World as parallel to the yeshivas of old, which is very bizarre. I mean, but and this we're talking about the president of Yale here who's making these statements. It's not just it's amazing. He refers, if I recall from your edition, he refers to the colleges and universities of America as Bate Midrash Shel America, right? As the, which is Beit Midrash is the is the traditional Jewish name for a house of study where you study the Talmud. And he calls them like he calls Yale like the Beit Midrash of America. It's an amazing. It's like a remarkable thing. He does. He does. And then it, what's fascinating also is in a later letter to him. I'm not recalling the exact date by a an American. Jew by the name of Isaac Pinto. Isaac Pinto makes the statement that he's uh, Rosh Yeshiva uh, Yelensis. You know, he's like the head of the Yale Yeshiva. 
which <laughs> I mean, I can only imagine I'm speculating here, but he must have been thrilled to have received that letter. The original Yeshiva University. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. So just shifting from there, but in, in a related direction, why is Jewish mysticism important for understanding the development of American religious toleration, right? So fundamental to the American experiment. So within the American experiment, I'm thinking of specifically of these sort of elite thinkers. They're predominantly congregational uh, ministers, congregational Christianity. So, you know, I'm looking here at the Mathers, Cotton Mather, many people may have heard of, uh, you know, he was somewhat of a controversial figure that he was also involved in the Salem witch trials and such. Right. Um, and the whole idea of spectral evidence, allowing spectral evidence. Uh, Increase Mather, who was the, he's the father of Cotton Mather, but he was also the president of Harvard, you know, and then we get people like Stiles. So most of these are congregational ministers. I also look at somebody who's a very important Quaker thinker, a guy named George Keith, who makes his way to the New World. But what's interesting here is they're trying to formulate what, uh, you know, there's a scholar named Alison Coderre. She, she frames this idea of an apostolic Jewish Christianity. Um, and she's, talk, she's actually talking about these circles around the Salzbach Zohar, um, you know, these people who are these Christian Kabbalists who are on the European continent in the 1670s, 1680s, who are attempting to utilize Kabbalah for their purposes of promoting and propagating a sort of new type of Christianity. Again, an apostolic Jewish Christianity, the idea here. I'll try to break down this fancy phrasing here. And by the way, like the Zoltzbach printers, like they're not some like marginal printers. So like the Zoltzbach edition of the Talmud, for example, is in use in the yeshiva in Volusian, which is like the primary, you know, elite Lithuanian Jewish school of higher learning. They don't think it's a very good edition, but they're they're using it there. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I mean, and the Zoltzbach people are also involved in something called the Kabbalah de Nudata, which is a uh, Latin translation of many Kabbalists texts, um, including Zoharic passages and such. It's a really complex thing, yeah. Yeah, it's very complex. And it's and a lot of these colonial thinkers are drawing upon this sort of type of Zotzbach type of thinking, this type of literature. It's no mistake that Ezra Stiles asks for the 1684 edition of the Zohar, the Zotzbach edition of the Zohar. But this idea of an apostolic Jewish Christianity, basically this is a fancy way of saying that the type of Judaism that Jesus and his disciples would have been involved in, after all, right? They were all Jewish. Jesus himself was Jewish. Um, so right. the idea is to try to sort of come back to this type of Protestantism that's stripped away of everything else but its sort of Jewish core. And for them... This leads to Kabbalah and Kabbalistic knowledge to sort of show what Jesus was really all about. And this was the type of Christianity that they were trying to support within the colonies. Um, and they, you know, someone like Stiles saw himself as creating a new form of congregationalism, even a new form of Christianity based upon Jewish mysticism in some ways. 
Like you said, he wasn't really interested in forcefully converting the Jews, but he thought, in, in my opinion, as far as I've seen from the textual evidence, he thought that it would sort of naturally happen once the Jews sort of understood that their own esoteric lore is pointing towards the truth of Christianity. Right. So how does this how does this line of thinking I mean like the line that line of thinking has obviously like a theological dimension to it and you know it's it's kind of like one way to read the interactions between Styles and these rabbis is they're kind of like they clearly have real affection for him like they're ex- like Rabbi Caragal is exchanging warm letters with him even after he's left the United States you know he's writing to him from Barbados but you can also see it as like they're kind of bemused by this by this Congregationalist minister who is so interested in this stuff. And yet, the, theological elements, not not aside, but kind of kind of bracketing them for a moment, this also has kind of like public policy implications. So you have, I think when Americans think about kind of religious toleration in the context of the American idea, there's sort of two mental models for it. And you talk about it in your book, like there's the melting pot model and then there's the pluralistic model. And the melting pot model kind of says, well, we're all we're all really the same. And so let's kind of all get on board the same train. And if we can all recognize ourselves as being on board the same train, we'll all be friendly towards each other. And the other model says we're we're actually leans into the, the actually the the importance of human difference. Like we actually are different from each other. And those differences are in some way important for society to to preserve and bring into harmony. And this kind of thinking, the kind of stuff that Styles and others are involved in, actually has major implications for which one of those models develops or how those models develop in America. So like how does that go? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting uh, direction in which to take this whole discourse because it's so relevant for us today. Let's be clear, though, I we don't want to be anachronistic here. I certainly don't think that Stiles, the Mathers, anyone else involved, including Karigal himself, if we look on the Jewish side of the picture here, None of these people were about some type of pluralism, cultural pluralism, as we would talk about it today. Um, right. Although, you know, it's tempting to read it that way. It's certainly, like you were saying, I think it's, if we look at it... But we, 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 like, we don't even need to to tell the story, you know what I mean? Right, right. But it's, I think, if we look at it, you know, the closest we would get, like you're saying, is sort of this melting pot picture in which, you know, uh, Stiles' idea there is that sort of everything's going to melt together into this new form of apostolic Christianity, and then the Jews will eventually become Christians also through this process. You know, sort of the idea of the, who said it, the lamb lying down with the... Right, the the wolf lying down with the lamb. The wolf lying down with the lamb, but only one of them in the end is going to get up, right? Right, right, right. (laughs) You know, so it's sort of an integrationist model in this way of a melting pot as opposed to some type of cultural pluralism. Now, that being said, you know, it's interesting to see how complex, though, the story becomes because, like you're saying... Ezra Stiles had complete and utter, it seems like he had great respect for all of these rabbis who were coming through town. Karigal, for some reason, shows respect the other way as well. You know, he's carrying on correspondence with him well after his um, time on the North American continent. 
And there really seems to have been some type of actual live cultural exchange going on here, uh, you know, regardless of what the end game or the agenda may have been in the end. So, I mean, yeah, I think it's fast. It's a fascinating point in American history and in the history of Jewish-Christian relations as well. So when most people think about, you know, Kabbalah or like Kabbalah, you know, as you, as you would pronounce it in the American pop culture, so they think about like the weirdo Hollywood version, right? Kabbalah or whatever the heck Madonna's up to these days. And, uh, you know, on the Jewish side, you know, we tend to be very cautious about Jewish mysticism, right? It's so central for thinking about our place in the world that classically its study has been like restricted. So if you're someone, maybe just a lay person, who, not for theological reasons, but you just take American history and tradition seriously and you want to understand the foundational impact of, you know, Jewish mystical tradition on the American founding and the American idea. So what's the best way to, to approach this? Like, how did you get into this? Yeah, um... Good question. Well, so how did I get into it in terms of the American context or in terms just generally? Well, well, both, I suppose. So, yeah, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's see. Uh, so in in terms of the my interest in Kabbalah, really, I, I became interested specifically in, in terms of the view of, as you were saying, the Italian Renaissance. That was sort of my initial deep dive into this type of lore. What fascinated me there was very much this idea of reason versus mysticism. If, uh, you know, you can, it's questionable and contentious of whether these two need to be opposed or not. But in the Renaissance period, this sort of comes to heads. And, you know, there's a lot of this idea of trying to read Kabbalistic lore, mystical lore, uh, esoteric lore, however we may frame it through a rationalist lens, through a philosophical lens. And I thought, okay, what are these people doing? Uh, in some cases, as you're intimating here, there's an attempt to try to sort of explain this and present this to the world at large, outside of the Jewish world, inclu including those outside of the Jewish world, I should say. You know, one of my uh, teachers, Yosef Dan, may his memory be for a blessing, he... One of the giants of Jewish mystical scholarship in the academy. He was a giant indeed, and he makes the claim that, you know, the developments, like you're saying, with Madonna and with pop cultural developments and such, is kind of a reflection of what's happening with Christian Kabbalah in the Italian Renaissance. That I'm not sure I fully buy that picture, but there is. I guess it's like it's like the kitschier version with merch, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Indeed, yeah. I think what he meant by that was that you know there's this attempt to sort of take it out of the element of Tameha Mitzvot of the giving reasons for the commandments. The commandments, right, the idea of mitzvot no longer are important when it enters into a general audience or a Christian audience or however it may be framed, a non-Jewish audience, maybe we should put it that way. You know, it's no longer important, you know, why do you put on tefillin? This is, you know, I'm just thinking sort of right. out loud here that, you know, there are certain Kabbalistic explanations, but the idea of the Kabbalistic explanation is to support the halachic, the 
you know, process of Jewish law and to, you know, sort of reinforce the actions. Uh, when, it get, when, it, when it enters into a non-Jewish space, this becomes suddenly irrelevant. But it was interesting to me from that perspective of not only the non-Jewish world coming into contact with the Jewish world at this point, you know, and then what are these Jewish thinkers doing with this stuff as well? That was my original interest here. You know, what are Jewish thinkers of the Renaissance doing with this when they're in dialogue with these non-Jewish thinkers who become fascinated with this quote-unquote ancient lore? So that's sort of what drew me in to that point, you know, this sort of dissemination into the wider world, a kind of rationalization for an understanding of this that goes beyond the mitzvot and, you know, how it then breaks its way into Western culture, into philosophy, more generally speaking. And I mean, I just think it's a fascinating story to be told, including not incidentally, you know, this question of, Jewish-Christian relations, and then what implications this all has for that type of thing, which then seeps into the American picture as well when I discuss the early colonial thinkers on this. Like, it's so fascinating. I, I, I sometimes observe kind of discourse around great books curricula and, you know, the, the rediscovery of the great Western canon. And I love all that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm in favor. I mean, an expanded version of the canon, but I'm in favor. But it's like, okay, well, if you're going to take that seriously, like if you're going to take people like Petrarch seriously, Henry Moore, the discoverer of the circulatory system seriously, Isaac Newton, Giovanni Pico della Mirandola, if you're going to take any, uh, I mean, if you're going to take any of these people seriously, you need to understand that mysticism and the Jewish mystical tradition in particular is a huge part of their world. They're like incomprehensible without this stuff. And your work has just been so eye-opening in, in that respect. And that actually leads me to my last question, which is, I know you just kind of published Kabbalah and the American Founding in 2021, so you deserve a breather. But what's uh, what's next? Uh, what's the next big project you're working on? Oh, that's a big question because I've got, <laughs> I've got several irons in the fire, so to speak. I am currently trying to finish up a book looking at Kabbalistic representations in film, uh, in wow. contemporary film, which is also, I mean, again, it's this question of the bridge between, uh, you know, here we have general culture, more popular culture, and these more esoteric traditions. What happens when you take this stuff that's supposed to be deemed esoteric knowledge and, you know, you're making it somehow uh, presentable in some way to mass audiences. Uh, all kinds of weird things happen. So I'm trying to flesh that out. I've also begun working on a book, believe it or not, with my wife, which is a little bit, it's, it's less of an academic book. Uh, my wife is involved in a field called positive psychology, Oh, awesome. We've had Tal Ben-Shachar on this podcast. That was a great episode. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that that whole field of study. And we noticed that, you know, a lot of the ideas of virtues, a lot of the idea of positive attributes and such that, you know, are developed within positive psychology uh, in terms of, you know, flourishing, the idea of human flourishing that there are very many Kabbalistic 
and Jewish philosophical parallels. And so we're trying to flesh that out. We're still at the very beginning of that project and we'll see where that leads. Absolutely fascinating. I love it. This is, these are amazing. Oh my God, yeah. Brian, this was awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. most important takeaway from that amazing conversation is the same takeaway we should get from the Renaissance itself. The future of humanity depends not on human beings narrowing their horizons, caring about less of the human experience than we did before, all we care about is physics or economics or whatever, but rather, like Isaac Newton, like Petrarch, like Erasmus, like Henry Moore, becoming insatiably curious about more of the human experience. Yes, figuring out how things work, the great scientific endeavor, but also why we love, why we can have hope. I mean, what our purpose is. And the story of Jewish mysticism as a foundational element of the American founding is just one example of that essential broadening of our curiosity. Anyway, thanks for joining us today. This has been an absolute blast. And while you are here, please be awesome. Head into Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Google Play, or anywhere else you get podcasts and give us a rating. Five stars only. Because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, this is Ari Lamb making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lamb. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at soulshop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. 